On Pop Fiction Women, we explore what it means to be a complicated woman. Tired of endless variations of leading men next to one-dimensional archetypes of women or strong female leads written by men that were essentially guys in women's bodies. We started this show to highlight the many female characters in entertainment worth exploring, as well as the women who dreamt them up. And now we're adding those creators to our conversations, discussing their process and passion in bringing these women to life. Welcome to Complicated Conversations. On these episodes, there's no spoilers. So come on, it's starting. Chandler Baker lives in Austin with her husband and two small children, where she works as a full-time writer and occasionally dabbles in her previous career of corporate law. She is the author of several young adult novels, and her debut, Whisper Network, was a New York Times bestseller and a Reese Book Club pick. Her second novel, The Husbands, is out now. Welcome to Pop Fiction Women, Chandler. Thank you guys so much for having me. We're so happy to talk to you and excited to talk about The Husbands. Can you tell us a little bit about this story? The Husbands is about an overworked lawyer mom who, while house hunting in a nice suburban area, meets a group of very high-powered women with enviably supportive husbands. And as she sort of gets to know the women more in the neighborhood, she is asked to take on a wrongful death suit for a resident who died in a house fire. And she goes through this process of uncovering not only the secrets in her own marriage, but also perhaps the secret to having it all when people might be worth killing for. So good. So I want to start by talking about Nora, who yeah, is- we should say oh, we no. should say off the bat, you're talking to two. We're both writers, both lawyers, <laughs> both with families, big law experience yeah. to differing degrees. But yeah, oh so Kate's going to talk more specifically about hers, but it also applies to me. So okay, yeah, wow. in, we can in talk really about good all company. The then wow, yes, yes, exactly. the overworked lawyer mom. Yeah, we've got that nailed. Uh, so so yeah, so for me reading about Nora, all I could think of was she's basically me or a version of me from Mm -hmm. about a decade ago. Like Nora, I practiced law in a big firm. And in 2009, I too, like Nora, was up for partner while also raising a toddler and pregnant secretly with my second child. I mean, nobody knew that year. So I'm reading Nora. I'm like, oh my gosh, like every single page. I was like, yep. Mm Mm-hmm. That happened. Yep. I I had that exact feeling. You like the conversation the partners have with her about her promotion and how her billable hours were affected by her maternity leave. I'm like, I had that conversation. The way people sort of immediately question her ability as a lawyer once she had a child happened to me. And just that feeling that that she's failing at everything, Mm -hmm. but fighting so hard nonetheless, like day in and day out. But I really do think, obviously, Nora is super related to me, but I think she'll be relatable to so many women, mothers working or not, lawyers or not. I mean, I think it's really this struggle you've written about here of the sort of weight of the invisible work of this second shift is going to be so relatable to so many people. So I wanted to ask you about your development of Nora. I mean, I would imagine she's drawn in part from your own life, but you know, I'd love to hear more about that or any challenges you faced in writing her. Yeah, certainly. I was a lawyer. I had a toddler at the time. I was going to be up for partner the next the year I left practicing law full time. So that changed that calculus a little bit. And I was pregnant with my second child at the end of my legal career. So yes, all those things feel very, very true to me. I think when I was in that phase, I just remember feeling like I wanted to actually request to be paid less at my law firm, which is this crazy thing. Cause I was just trying to find any way to sort of reduce the guilt of feeling like I'm failing on all fronts. So Mm -hmm. I remember having these conversations with my husband, like, okay, I I think I'm going to say, pay me less. I'll work a little bit less. And that way I will feel like I'm holding up my end of the bargain. And I think that's sort of the crux of who Nora feels like to me, but you know, she's also not an 
avatar of me either. I think every family has their own sort of individual circumstances and how their household runs. So certainly there's things that Hayden doesn't do that my husband does. And we've worked out our own individual ways of working things out as a family, which is just, it's not easy. And it takes a lot of trial and error. And we both probably have those frustrated thoughts with each other. I'm sure his internal monologue is also sometimes (laughs) um, questioning as well. But I talked to so many women. And during the course of writing this book, I would ask like every woman I came into contact with, I would say, what do you wish? that your your husband did that he doesn't do without being asked. And we would get into these long conversations. And so, so much of that went into the character of Nora and her internal monologue. Yeah. I was going to say, I wrote a question here and I said, you write for the modern working woman, but it's not even the idea of working has evolved so much and not even just through the pandemic, which it absolutely has through the pandemic. But even before that, there was so much more of the movement to working in the house or working at something a little bit more flexible, Mm -hmm. aside from lawyers, uh, where they still don't really give that. The stay-at-home mom sometimes feels like someone who doesn't even exist anymore because no one is just staying at home. They are pursuing something for themselves Mm -hmm. um, on the side to whatever degree they can with the hours or the time or the interest they have. So you really write for every woman, woman right now, giving words to her frustrations, small victories, and deepest wounds. But what I really love is that you write with such nuance because it can feel very black and white, and it's not. And you give that to Nora, you give her not only how much she's frustrated and fed up at times, and certainly that's the point of the story is for her to get to a breaking point where she might think about doing something differently. But you really give also the feeling of that she loves her husband, even though she's frustrated, she doesn't want to not be with him. I wanted to read a couple of those paragraphs because it's the part that often gets left out when we're complaining and frustrated and and venting. Mm -hmm. On page 46, you write, it's mortifying, actually, arguing about whether her husband takes too long in the bathroom at bedtime. Their problems are so utterly mundane. Before she got married, she worried whether they could handle things like an affair or cancer. And now she wonders whether her reaction would be any stronger and more furious if her husband were sleeping with another woman than if he asked her again where they kept the extra paper towel rolls (laughs) and then on the next page she says she hates Nora says she hates the invisible barrier that thickens between them like scar tissue after these arguments because Hayden really is her best friend in the whole world on car rides they make up games where they get a babysitter so they can walk five miles at dusk getting drinks and street food along the way talking about high school and college and first loves they go on epic searches for the best coffee in foreign cities they take turns reading Stephen King novels out loud in bed and then the next page which is just the perfect ending to the chapter he says i love you and she says love you she echoes and she truly does love him loves him with all her whole heart wants to strangle him with her love wants to love him until he's dead sometimes i mean (laughs) it's just so good so good but this story very much is not about two people that like fall out of love and stop trying. Mm-hmm. This is two people very much in it together, want to be a couple, but are having a hard time managing the logistics of it. And you capture for me and for millions of women who love their husbands, but also need support from them. It's this yes and also situation. And I wanted to ask you how you envision your role in this, because you're not Nora, as you said, but how you envision this role in moving conversations forward, because this is also a different topic, but same women's issues of the Whisper Network. And so this is obviously a thing for you, a theme for you that you want to be involved in. And so what do you see like that? Do you feel like the protector? Do you feel like just a mouthpiece or a champion? How do you see your role in these bigger conversations? I do feel very protective of my readers. And that's something that's evolved because I definitely hear from a lot of women, particularly after Whisper Network. So I feel like I'm in this position where I can write about the issues and just sort of lend some vocabulary for women to talk about them. Because a lot of women will say to me, you know, I've had the this sort of vague feelings around these issues, but I didn't know quite how to put 
put it. So, you know, number one, I just want women to feel seen. Like I know one of the things that has helped me most through this season of my life is having girlfriends to talk to and venting to your girlfriends just is so helpful. Sometimes it really does undo the valve a little bit on your life, but we're also in this time of our lives where a lot of times, if I want to call my girlfriend at 6 PM, like everyone's doing dinner time with their kids. And like, we're all hard to connect even after bedtime, everyone's kids are like still getting up and down and up and down. So I hope my books can make it feel like you're venting to your best friend or you're hearing it echoed back because what's so nice about talking to your friends is that sense that they are like, yes, that happened to me too. So that's what I love most. And then, you know, the other thing is lending that vocabulary, how to talk about these issues, the words of what you're feeling, maybe put a little bit more succinctly. And if people can take that to their partners, then great. I always say that I am not interested in writing about bad guys. I have heard men say that my books feel anti-man and I don't feel that at all about my books. I think I am talking about guys other than like the sexual harassment in Whisper Network, but mostly I think I'm trying to talk about men that are trying. They care about their wives. They want to do well, but for whatever reason, gender norms in the households have been really sticky and changing, like almost stickier than anything else. So I do think these are conversations that we have to keep having in the house. And I always say like, when I read about the answers to how to solve division of domestic labor, the solution put forward is almost always communication. Communication is the answer, which I'm not saying that's not true, but communication is exactly what's so hard. I feel like it's like telling a kid that in order to be good at math, you need to be good at math. And you're like, no, (laughs) communication is the part that we are struggling with. Yes. Yes. Exactly. And Nora has a line where she says, I'm communicating my ass off. But but the other thing is, it's about communicating in the way that someone can hear you and understand what you're saying. It's not just about screaming like you haven't changed the toilet paper. You know, it's mm-hmm. not about saying the thing. It's about like having a conversation that yeah. is, and that's seemingly impossible to do when, especially with little kids. Yes. Yeah. And everyone takes it personally. Of course they do. It's so easy to take things personally that happen within our own house. It feels yeah. like it's only happening to us. It feels so specific to us. But the fact is that it, there are are a lot of systemic issues that make it such. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. But you really are giving voice to what so many of us talk about, like you're saying, amongst our friends or internally. And you really do question candidly whether, you know, this is what we all signed up for, you know, and fought so hard for. And I, I wanted to read this part that just talk about giving voice to things that I've thought like this. <laughs> ay, ay, ay. So on page 109, it, this is right after, you know, a male coworker helps her at work, like really helps her out of a jam and takes on some work for her so she can go home to be with her daughter. You write, because frankly, part of her wants to murder feminism herself. Somebody please hand her the knife and Nora will be happy to stab that saucy bitch straight in the back. The traitor. From the minute Liv was born, Nora had fretted needlessly about the messaging of princess movies. You don't need rescuing, darling. You'll be perfectly capable of saving yourself. That's what good mothers say, isn't it? Ones that are paying attention to think pieces and message boards and who don't just tell little girls that they're pretty, right? In return for not eating the evil apple of misogyny, has she heard? She doesn't have to marry a CEO. She can be the CEO. Little girls are now promised adventure and freedom and meaningless sex in their 20s. And all across the land, the magical kingdom will be populated not by princesses, but by queens straightening each other's crowns. So be it decreed on Instagram. (laughs) So I I have to keep going. So, but as exhaustion seeps into her bones, Nora wants to scream, look around. Not only will you be getting to save yourself, you'll be getting to do literally everything else yourself too. Brava. What a win for womankind. And then she says, all she's saying is that it had felt a little bit good to be rescued today, to allow herself to be rescued. That's all. And that maybe, just maybe, if women had known that the only math involved to the equation of getting fancy new jobs would be addition at best and multiplication at worst, they might not have been so eager to cast off Prince Charming, who, by the way, was apparently quite happy to be like, cool, you've got this now, and saunter off to read his iPhone on the toilet for an hour, happily ever after. (laughs) 
is just so good. So good. So good. I mean, talk about giving voice to what I thought. Like, wait a second. Why did we sign up for this? Have we got the messaging wrong? I don't know. What do you think? I don't think we've got the messaging wrong totally. And I don't think where we've landed is completely our fault. You know, women are, you know, making up close to 50% of the workforce and yet we are doing way more than 50% of the domestic labor. Like those numbers are off and I don't want to give up my job. I am glad that we are sort of in the best position professionally, women as a whole that has ever happened. Although we are backsliding, which is concerning. Like statistically we're backsliding and you know, we're in like the she session and I want to be mindful of that. But overall we have more opportunities than our, our mothers had, which is wonderful. But you know, one, the gender norms in the household are really sticky. No wonder the men don't necessarily want them to change. I think it's really hard to expect men to voluntarily, I mean, they should, but voluntarily change these gender roles that have existed for centuries behind us until we start getting things like paternity leave, until we get schools that are calling dads as much as they're calling moms. This default parenting is going to happen and it's going to be hard for us to claw our weight out of. And then the other thing is kind of to what you were saying earlier about, you know, even the pressure on stay-at-home moms. I think that there are all these narratives put on us by media, by TV, by Instagram. Oh yeah. Pinterest. By Pinterest. The death. (laughs) Exactly. And they're all sort of targeted at women, like this wellness narrative, you know, the fact that the beauty narrative, the Pinterest mom narrative, the girl boss narrative, like we're adding all of these things and we're not subtracting any, we are just adding them. I just feel like we're in women. It's sold to us often by saying like, you need to do these things to feel fulfilled. And we're like, we're fulfilled. We are overflowing. <laughs> <laughs> All filled up. Thank you yes. very much. Yes. Thank you. I'm yes. <laughs> Overflowing here. Yeah, I think the messaging isn't wrong. The messaging is just incomplete. Where are all the men's memes where like little boys are taking care of something that's not just involving a tool belt or like the car, you know, like where is the messaging about being a father, about helping out, about being around more? And the problem is a lot of times messaging comes from capitalistic origins and capitalism by all stretch of the imagination is the one that benefits from everybody working as hard as they can. Men, women, whoever. There is not such an interest in putting out the message that you should work a little less and be more present and turn off, have boundaries at work. It's just not a great message for work. You know, some people, Adam Grant is really good about that, talking about how, or Tim Ferriss too, less work can often mean more productivity, more and happiness, less turnover. So many benefits to that. But that messaging is pretty new and I'm, I'm glad it's coming out and it's also still coming out at the corporate level as opposed to like be a person at home too, be a father you know one of the proudest moments I've had as a working mother was when I was working at UBS and they had a huge billboard and it was I don't remember the exact wording but it was like how are you doing as a father today and I was like, what? <laughs> this is amazing. Wow. Like directly targeted at men and specifically, how are you parenting? How are you as a father? And I was like, oh, that's really good. And they were a Swiss bank. I was going to uh, say, it's yeah. the Swiss. It's the Swiss. European. Although I, know. I don't say too many positive things about law firms and I still work in one, so I got to watch it. But paternity leave is actually very, very good at law firms. And uh, yeah, at least here. all the firms. Yeah, see, we get in New York City firms, we get... 12 weeks paternity and more importantly, it is totally acceptable to take it in all the firms that I've been in now. Again, this is within the last few years. Like when it first came out, it was like, okay, well, it's out, but it was like one week and and that's it. it. Yeah. Yeah. It was more like vacation. Yeah, but they take it. It doesn't have to be immediate. Like the women, if the women mother wants to do her 12 weeks and then the father wants to do the next 12 so that they can spread out who's home. I mean, so yeah. 
some improvements, but I guess, yes, that that's all. Yeah. yeah. We are, I don't think there yet. You know, I think the last time I worked at was four weeks paternity leave, but honestly people didn't take it. Yeah, and if people right. don't take it, then, then it doesn't really matter. Doesn't. And I understand. Mm-hmm. And I think what you were saying is so true. Like the system is predicated and always has been on the idea of one parent can work and one parent can stay home. So the parent that works is expected to be available at all times. And modern technology is making us more connected and available as ever. And so it's still built on that assumption. And so now you have two parents in the workplace and they're both expected to be available at all times. And they can't be, of course. With the fatherhood, I think that that's such a wonderful message. And I think we just need to also have like a more holistic idea of what fatherhood is because it is also doing the dishes because your kids need clean dishes. It is also, you know, it is not just reading bedtime stories. It's not just playing out in the yard. Like it is folding the laundry because kids need clothes. And and those tasks are not as fun and rewarding feelings, but it's it's all part of parenting. Uh, Agreed. Thank you. Yes. (laughs) So we're talking about messaging and we're talking about the next generation and and hopefully how it gets better. Uh And there's a very adorable and universal exchange. I'm going to read page 184 between Nora and Hayden's there as well. And their daughter, Liv, is she three? Four. Four. Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. So cute. So Liv is sitting on the rug. She is holding her hot pink plastic phone. She has a very serious expression for a four-year-old. Thank you. Yes. Mm -hmm. What are you doing? Nora kneels down beside her. Working, says Liv without looking up. Hold on. This is my job. Oh my, Hayden chuckles. What do you do for work? Liv looks up at him, her brow still creased computer you do computer that sounds very important he says i bet you make a load of money doing that a load she agrees then shrugs i have to finish this it's important well nora says let's make dinner a firm deadline have it on my desk by then Liv's beautiful blonde curls fall over her ears she is an absolute boss lady mommy i'm just busy busy is how god made me amen thanks nora <laughs> so cute. so adorable i mean and my house is do you have to hear yes, yeah yes. absolutely and like i'm working yes. yeah <laughs> their impersonations of me though now include the expletives that i say so much oh, a little older yeah, so okay. that's not a great example <laughs> but that's like most conference calls they i don't like when they do those impersonations do they, <laughs> no, so do you feel guilty or do you not feel guilty like when you hear yeah i i feel I terrible do, I, I, I'm not as bad. I'm just like, oh my God, do I actually sound like that? Because they make me sound like a crazy person. And, oh. and so I'm just, I'm just, because it's like so aggressive and the person, yeah. and I'm like, oh, do I really sound like that? But that's how I sound to them. So <laughs> yeah. I wrote yeah. an essay a while ago about how I'm like, I, I felt so torn telling my kids to get off screens when mm-hmm. I was always on a oh, screen. Yeah. I'm like, get yeah. off the screen as I'm on my, my yeah. screen and talking about screen time and boundaries and not at all. Now, I got a lot of comments on the essay that were like, well, you're the adult, but I still just knew it just children don't understand nuance. And they also see more what you do as opposed to what you say. Mm -hmm. We all know that. And I also know it's not that healthy for me either. Oh, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So, oh, duh. So, so true. (laughs) (laughs) It's the last thing I think of, but you're right. I'm always thinking about my kids before me. But anyway, so I wanted to go back to busy and busy is how God made. I saw on Instagram that you recently embraced the fact that you are what some people might call a workaholic, but you beautifully redirected that label by saying you feel very grounded in work, in control, productive, useful, centered even. I really held on to that word, especially because as we've already said, Kate and I are both lawyers with families who write and podcast and- We were recently talking about this and I likened myself to one of those large breeds of dogs that just needs a lot of exercise. And it's not like that's bad for the dog. In fact, it's good for the dog because Mm -hmm. if he doesn't get it, he's chewing your walls and devouring your shoes. And so I liken my brain to that. And if it doesn't have this deep mental workout, Mm -hmm. then I'm laying up at night creating all sort of doomsday scenarios that no one wants to be a part of. So is that the way you 
think of it or do you think it's something that you need to catch for yourself as an unhealthy inclination? I think that's such a good analogy. I take a lot of joy from my work. I'm not saying it never stresses me out. Of course it does because I want to do a good job and I want to be good. But I remember even being younger, I was like, I really want a job where I have to think and where I have to problem solve. And I feel like being a lawyer was that. And I feel like being a writer is certainly that. So yes, I do need that mental exercise. I love having lots of irons in the fire. I love things happening. It's fun for me. So no, I, I don't feel like it's mentally unhealthy for me personally. I kind of felt strange. I had a very productive pandemic. Like I worked a lot and I felt weird about that as lots of people were talking about how they couldn't work at all, which I understand for them. For me, I need to work in order to feel grounded and centered. Like I said, I do think I have a problem with chasing brass rings. Mm. Uh, I think a lot of lawyers probably are like sort of overachievers, <laughs> yeah. teachers, pets. So I do think I have to check myself sometimes and ask, am I doing this work? Because I really do find it fulfilling because I think I'm doing a good job because I think I can be a value add or am I chasing some kind of brass ring? The gold star. Yeah. Yeah. I say the gold star. Brass ring works too. Yeah. I love Um, the gold stars. I love them. I could eat them for breakfast every day. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. I don't know that that's incredibly healthy. It's not the worst impulse curve about oneself. So there's that. And I do let my husband check me a bit because he is definitely the person that like has me put down my laptop and he does not understand all my workaholic tendencies. And of course he is right in that the thing that I'm going to remember in my life is the time with my kids and not this book deal or that book deal or, you know, it's, it's that impact that matters most. And I think you can do both. I think you can have both, but I do sometimes need to be reminded to. Yeah. Yeah. to be present when it's time to be present. Yeah. Mm. I'm glad that there's the distinction of, I don't, busy is a different thing than being even workaholic, right? It's mm-hmm. busy is just trying to avoid whatever you're trying to avoid. But the, like you said, being centered in your work and grounded in your work, and then it makes you feel secure and safe. And you didn't use those words. I'm using those words. Mm-hmm. That's how I feel. That is a completely different thing. And sometimes I feel like when I say that, people look at me like, "Mm, you're lying. You're just trying to avoid something. And I'm like, I really don't think so. But that's where I am. Because I know when I try to take on less, I just feel anxious and worse. And by the way, everyone in my house is more miserable Yeah, because it gets directed at them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'll find something to do. So it might as well be something. worthwhile. (laughs) Productive. Exactly. Worthwhile. Something I want to do. Yeah. We usually save this to the end, but I needed to talk about astrology. I mean, I have this whole thing written, but I don't remember where I saw that you, but you're a Pisces. Yes. I am a Pisces. Yes. I know very little about astrology. That's okay. Because let me tell you, you don't need to know anything. You are just quintessential Pisces. It is in your books, in you. I follow you on Instagram, your stories, everything you could not be any more Pisces. How Pisces. What does that mean? So Pisces, and especially Pisces women, are intuitive, empathetic, have a deep desire to help others. They're also very creative and fun. My daughter is a Pisces, and I actually know a lot about my son son is Aries but I have a lot of Pisces in my chart so I have a lot of that as well okay and by the way all of our names start with C I'm not trying to like get you to join some cult but I'm like I, I'm I, I love I'm I, you don't even have to ask I love it I love it I love it so you're saying you don't know much about your sign but do you have any interest or curiosity about astrology yes one of my girlfriends is always like will send stuff about my kids sometimes and yes I do think it's fascinating when people are telling about it I was actually looking up some things recently for the next book I'm writing and I was like what would my character sign be and what does that say about her yes that was kind of my first foray into it so yes I have an interest that's very exciting what sign are you going to make your character? I think I decided that she was a cancer. Ooh, good. Oh, good. That's a good those one. Those are our, both our mothers okay. are cancers. Mm-hmm. So we have a lot of information on okay. that. Like. And they are good 
protagonists. They okay. are very good protagonists. Good. But, you know, the whole thing is you start with your sun sign, which is like, I think I probably picked it up in college or high school, like reading your horoscope. But then mm-hmm. the more you start to dig into other signs and other planets and how they're aligned, Kate and I have just started to get into it. Which one were we looking at the other day? Mars. Mars. My Mars oh is my in God. Cancer. I actually do have a lot of Cancer in my, in my chart too. Okay. A lot of water signs. But it just... It's uncanny. It's, it's really, I mean, it's really incredible. Yeah. yeah. So we really have a side interest here in astrology and we ask all our authors and even ones who don't you know know their sign or whatever like we always get such interesting answers so yes it's, it's, we, we can't let go of this question because we love it and this one i mean corinne was like she's such a pisces such my a husband's pisces. a pisces too so i know they're very feeling well they're, my they're son is a pisces pisces women and pisces men well they say this about all the signs but i just happen to know my brother's a pisces my son's a pisces i have a lot of pisces men and they are different they are just fundamentally different. They are. I, when I was looking up for the character, I think I was, I looked a little bit at my own sign and it was sort of ranking like how open I think emotionally, how much like how we're sharers. And I think Pisces were like big sharers. Right? Yes. Oh yeah. I feel like that is so true to me. I feel like I'm a very confessional person. I yeah. think mm-hmm. I feel close to people by confessing probably way too much sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the really interesting thing is, and you get into this kind of nuance, the more you dig into it, some signs are oversharers because they want to talk about themselves. Pisces are oversharers in the way that they think this is how we can relate to one another. Mm-hmm. Like I want to connect with you. I want to share this with you. So you feel less alone, that kind of thing. Service is always like a really big underlying motivation for everything that Pisces do. So So I'm an oversharer, Corinne, as Uh you know, and you're going to tell me that Leos do it because they just want people to hear about themselves. Well, no, it's more of just that you just, (laughs) Leos believe they're the center of the universe. So they think everyone would want to hear about me. So (laughs) yes. Yeah. It's just like, why not? This is the thing. Like here it is here. I'm giving you what you probably want, which is more about me. But Pisces overshare on on a different level. It's yes. really interesting stuff. I'm an Aries. An Aries, yeah. yes. Okay. Yeah, yeah, Aries. But I have Capricorn Moon, and I have a lot of water signs. So okay. I'm also like the the second day of Aries. So my birthday's in March. So okay. I, a lot of Pisces, just even being on the cusp. And do you feel like astrology helps you actively, like in your life? I absolutely do. It helps me to know myself more and explain something that I thought was weird about me. It gives it a a kind of a name. But then also, it's not just about birth chart and and your own stuff, but what's going on in the cosmos, like Mercury retrograde or full moons. And, And so you start to see like, okay... Maybe just chill out right now because this is also you're feeling stressed, but maybe this is also what's going on right now in the universe a little bit. So don't take action right now or don't. So it helps me on both of those levels to know myself, but then also to know what might actually be going on around me. So I don't need to be so reactive about it. That's interesting. I always thought of it as more sort of reflective, like showing you what was already there than a decision making tool. But that's interesting. Yeah. It also helps you understand understand other people. So like, I like to find out, you know, in relationships or your children or Mm -hmm. things like that. I mean, it really does explain a lot sometimes like, ah, that makes sense now. Yeah. Yeah. Children are a good idea. Should look at yeah. Us. So I'm going to make this question short. I know we're running out of time, but I do have to ask it about your path to publication and just the fact that we, we've talked to tons of lawyers turned authors. Yeah. We've already made it clear that we are lawyers too, but for, and I know you don't practice anymore, but you did for a long time while mm-hmm. being a prolific writer and practicing law. And, yeah. and how did you decide to keep doing both? Or did you feel at some point you had to make the choice? I mean, how did you manage those two sides of yourself? I always felt like I got just enough publishing success to keep going while my law career was burgeoning. So I got my agent my first month of law school. So I was like, that was kind of fresh and kept me going. I was writing towards that. And then while I was studying for the bar, I started ghostwriting some existing middle grade books. So I, that was the first time I'd gotten paid a little bit to write. So that kind of kept me going. 
growing. And then I started writing my own book and I sold that my second year associate year at Mm -hmm. a law firm, which as you guys know, in a law firm, your first and second years are very, very difficult, so hard. And it's also just having your first like big girl job in general, Mm -hmm. just a hard time of life, I think. So I, you know, I got that little taste of success and then, you know, sold a couple more books in those intervening years. And it was really, really hard looking back at it now. I feel like I was running on fumes. You know, I would do things like do silent drives. So I wouldn't listen to anything on the way to work, wouldn't listen to any music. And I would just think about the writing I needed to do. I would set timers for 15 minutes throughout the day. You know, I would, I think everyone has kind of mindless parts of their job. So doing my billing, maybe I would do late at night, time entry once my brain was already dead and save some of my good brain time for during the day when I can snag it. You know, it was just constantly piecing together little bits of time. But financially, I could not leave my job. Mm -hmm. And it was just getting harder. I had my daughter before I got the deal for Whisper Network. So I don't know what would have happened if I didn't sell Whisper Network when I did. And Mm -hmm. if Reese hadn't picked it for her book club and all those things, because I feel like the way we make decisions in my family, we always say that we delay decisions as long as we can until the answer becomes clear to us. Oh my God. Um, This is the story of my life. Holy cow. But you just articulated that really well. Yeah. Yes. So, you know, go to our, what feels like our breaking point. And we always say, we'll know it when we see it. I finally, you know, I got in the Whisper Network deal and then I heard that the Reese's Book Club thing came and I was pregnant with my second child. And I thought if I keep doing both at this pace, I'm not going to see my daughter at all. The last summer of her being an only child, like it's just not, you know, I'm not going to get to do these fun things with her. And I just felt like I was finally breaking. I was working every hour of the day, it felt like, and just kind of falling apart, trying to make this work. And so I thought I was going to go part-time. And then as I, I work in a satellite office, so I had to drive three hours up to my main office, to my bosses. And I was like, I don't think part-time is going to cut it. I think I just need to leave. And it just became clear and my husband was really supportive of it. So if I wouldn't have become financially feasible, I don't know if I would have been able to keep writing. I don't know how much longer doing both would have worked yeah. for me. So I'm very thankful. I can't believe you were you were really dual tracking it from the start. Getting yeah. an agent in law school and then yeah, that the whole time you were just doing both mm-hmm. professionally, yeah. both of them. That's unusual. We haven't heard that. We have really? people who started writing once they were already lawyers. Yeah. Okay. They kind of pursued this dream they had of writing. Uh-huh. Which is what it was for me. Once I had yeah. the stability and the safety of knowing I was a lawyer, no one could take away my law degree. I was mm-hmm. making good connections. I was doing good work. Once I had that, I was like, okay, now I want to explore writing. And and I slowly tried to back myself out of the lawyering as I would okay. do more more writing. Yeah. I mean, it certainly took a toll on my legal career in some ways. Like I felt like I had to, I, I kind of found an, a niche that I could work in at my law firm for this private equity client that wasn't going to require me to go out and network. It was going to be hard to ever become sort of a rainmaker. I was working a lot and I had good hours, but I wasn't taking on some of the types of works that I think a lot of other corporate lawyers would have liked to take on at that stage because I had a lot of autonomy in what I was doing. And I was like, I need, I need this to be what I do in order to keep writing. I felt kind of a lot of shame at it at the time. I I was going to say, it's really hard to let go of that identity. It's something that you have to work hard for. Yeah. And it's not easy to let go of. And something, I don't know, for me, I dreamt of being a lawyer from a young age. I did too. Even, yeah. So then that's really hard to let go of. It feels like letting go an important part of your identity. I think what I've realized is I'm not actually, that part of my identity is not gone. It's Mm -hmm. never gone. Mm -hmm. And even when I'm not practicing law, the things that made me a good lawyer, the things that made me want to be a lawyer are not gone. They're never gone. They're just who I am. Yeah. Yes. That training is definitely always in you. It's hard to be paying student loan debts for law school while you're not practicing law. It's not. Right. (laughs) Right. It's not. But the shame. 
I mean, I think that's, people don't talk about that. They don't sort of name it. And it's true. It really is a part of your identity and to grapple with how to keep those parts, but still pursue other things. I mean, this is, this is hard. (laughs) Yeah, it is. But I think, I just wish I would have realized more when I was younger, because I did feel that sense of shame. I think when you're younger, you're taught kind of, you have to choose your career path. And it feels like every year of your existence that you're growing up, your choice is narrow, right? You can go to law school, then you're probably not going to medical school. You, you know, you're, you're narrowing your choices more and more, but I don't think our choices narrow as much as we think they do. I mean, look at, look at y'all, you're lawyers, you're doing stuff on the side. Same with me. Like you can do both if it's something you want to do. And then eventually you do need to narrow your choices. Probably if you get to that breaking point and there is a sense of shame about it. And if you're someone that likes gold stars, I was like, I'm not going to be partnered a law firm. Okay. I guess that's (laughs) There's a lot of sunk costs and putting in that time as a young associate and then not seeing it through. Yes. And probably the only thing that really does go away is if you're go to law school, you're probably not going to go to medical school, but that's not really true. First of all. And second of all, you probably weren't going to go to like the people who are interested in those two things. There's not a ton of them. Although I say that, and my husband was a biology major who wanted to go to medical school and ended up in law school. Okay. And and that's where we met. But last question, we just want to ask what you are into right now. Are you reading anything, watching any TV, movies, anything that you want to share with our listeners? I have been having this like great reading kick recently, which, you know, doesn't always happen, but I've just been having so much fun with it. I love when I go through those stages. I read The Plot by Um, Jean Hamp Corlett. We had her on. Oh my gosh. Loved it. Thought it was so fun. I read Nothing to See Here by Kevin Wilson, which I'm a little bit late on, but I loved it. I um, loved that too. Yes, so good. I read Malibu Rising by Taylor Jenkins Reid. That was wonderful. We've just started that one. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I read Empire of Pain. So all really good. And what I'm watching, gosh, we haven't had like a, I, my husband and I, this is ridiculous. We watched every season of The Challenge, like MTV's The Challenge over. Us oh, too. What? I have literally never said that to anyone and had their reaction <laughs> be like, I I also watched me I haven't either and I've said it and no one ever no they're like they're what this yes. I don't even know what it is so happy oh my god I cannot and then I'm like what can we talk about like I need to know all the things I've wanted to talk about oh my gosh it's yes yeah. <laughs> can connect another time yes have a oh my god uh, yes yes so that i'm is like johnny cool. bananas mm-hmm. ct being i mean ct what growth that man has had yes he's so much more likable now yes um, but i think the deep down he's still kind of an a-hole in his yeah oh yeah heart. but i think that relationship with diem really changed things and his son really changed things yeah I, yes I, you can't too. fundamentally change who you are but i think he has done more growth than anyone else on that show he's a delight i'm a big ct fan despite myself but sometimes when i we've gone back and rewatched seasons which is super sad <laughs> and uh and, and some of the stuff with diem is it's kind of a rough rewatch it is yeah. oh it is oh i haven't rewatched any of it but it i can imagine i can see I it i think you'll think he's more of a dirtbag yeah well he is i mean he definitely is there's really no kind of way around it but he had some sweet moments and by the way still a jerk with what he did to big t oh that's what that's but what also I sweet yes hey, no I'm but so it, sorry no it's <laughs> no idea what you're talking about. but but he was so good to her at certain points he was so encouraging so sweet and then yes he turned around and was a jerk Wait, so is you're this right reality this tv reality yes. Yes. so corinne loves reality tv do you like other reality tv or is this this one just particularly nabbed you. I do love other reality TV, uh, but okay, not like so. I am not a Bravo person or I don't do any of the, like the Real Housewives. I was like diehard 10 years of teen mom. <laughs> yeah, MTV, the MTV Wait, what's stuff. the one you love, Corinne? The, oh, Vanderpump Rules. T- That's Bravo. Oh, yeah. Okay, yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. I, I haven't, okay. I feel like that train has left the station for me and it's too far gone. I just... 
Yeah, it's fair. You have a good repertoire here. Yeah, no, I've got the challenge. And gosh, my husband is going to be so excited. (laughs) This came up. Seriously. And that no one ever watches it. I'm like, who? Meanwhile, I see like Hollywood reporter blasts that say, you know, the best season of the challenge ever ratings. I'm like, well, who's watching it? Well, it's been like 36 seasons or somebody's watching it. It's not just us. I just don't know how to. How many seasons? Seriously? 36. 37 is the next one. Yeah. yeah. And you've watched them all? Yeah. I think there's I think like a so. few that aren't available now <laughs> on streaming. I mean, we like paid for the service. Yes. To like, oh, did you oh, do the Paramount one. one? Oh, yes. We did Paramount. We didn't We didn't do that. How was it? Level was it worth up. it? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Done. Yeah, Done. Worth it. What kind of question is that? <laughs> like, come on. What did you cheap out? <laughs> no. No. I, to be honest, we did watch a couple of like the preview clips and it was, seemed like a lot of the old, like Trishel and Katie. I was like, no, I can't go back to that that's too regressive oh no you can and it's oh, yeah. excellent it's excellent it's <gasps> tough. oh you can it's tough to not watch in hd but i feel like you're up to the challenge once you settle in you'll be okay did you watch all stars of course oh god yes okay, of course so good. yeah so good yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, this is so great. I mean, we, we did a podcast show with uh, these two women have a podcast called Table Flipping, which is based on the what's her name, Guidice, who flipped the table. Listen oh, to me. I don't, yeah. you don't watch Yes, yeah, that's yeah, she doesn't watch it. I don't watch it, but they I don't watch any. So I said on there, I was like, they were all excited, and I'm like, I'm like a reality TV virgin. You guys just need to like indoctrinate me. And they were we had a good time talking. Yeah, because I, I compared I compared characters on reality TV to fictional characters okay. so and we did like a Kate was able a to speed have, round yeah, yeah. and horse, I loved that a horse and a game okay. but those were all Bravo people do you have five minutes to talk about what's going on with the adaptation of the husbands sure yes oh good with Kristen Wiig this yes is so exciting I know right yeah so it's been adapted or you're writing I'm the screenplay yes Kristen Wiig is attached to star mm-hmm Plan B Entertainment, which people will know as Brad Pitt's production company. Talk about what's going on and why you decided to, other than that you love all the fires and the the irons in the fire, to write the screenplay and how that's going. Gosh, well, I had been in a situation before where I had optioned a book and we just really, really struggled to find the right writer for it. And I had brought up me writing for it. And that was always like, I don't want to say push to the side. I think they were hoping to get a bigger fish to write it. And that was a valid choice, but we never found someone to write it. And I was always very frustrated by that because I was like, I am a writer. I write things. (laughs) (laughs) I can do this. I don't know. I trust myself a lot in these situations. I feel like even if I don't know how to do something immediately, like I will figure out and I will do a good job. I just know that I will. I don't know if that sounds... Mm -hmm. No. No. I trust myself more than I trust anybody else. So, you know, this time when the husbands went out, I felt like I was in a different position. You know, Whisper Network had become a New York Times bestseller. I just felt like I had a little bit more leverage and also that we saw it as a movie, which is a little bit easier to be attached to than if it were a TV series. So I just said from the beginning, I just said, I want to be attached. You know, if anybody wants to talk about me not being attached, then they can have that conversation with me. I'm not saying I won't have the conversation, but that's this is where I'm coming from. And so that's how we went out. And and it was sent to Kristen on like a Friday. And by Sunday, I had an email from my film agent saying that Kristen wanted to talk on Monday. And so I hopped on the phone with Kristen Wig, which like as a millennial woman, I feel like was amazing. Yeah. So seminal for me. And she was really lovely. And, you know, she is also a writer, a very good writer, been nominated for an Academy Award for her screenwriting. But, you know, she just said like, I had thought, you know, maybe I would adapt it. And then I heard you wanted to adapt it. And she's like, I just really want to protect writers. And I really want to protect you as a writer and help you in any way I can. And she introduced me to Plan B and to Dee Gardner. And I loved them. And they introduced me into MGM. And I was just like, this is all clicking into place. And so that's how we did it. And, you know, right now I'm in, I'm in the middle of it and I'm writing and um, lucky to have their very smart feedback. You know, Kristen has kids the same age as my son and like almost exactly so oh wow we're both in it (laughs) yes right deep in it right yes wow and how has the experience been for you in doing that it is different from 
writing a novel, even though you're a writer. Yes, yes, even though I'm and a, a good writer. writer. No, I, even just false sense of bravado. I'm like, sure, I can do this. I mean, there's so much subtraction. I feel like right now I'm just at the point where it's just everything has got to go cutting, cutting, cutting. This doesn't need to be in the movie. This doesn't need to be in the movie. And I think the hard thing about doing that with a mystery is that it still has to make sense. Yeah. You, have you have to, to have pieces. Yeah. Right. So I'm like, okay, what can yeah. I take out without ruining the whole thing? And, you know, I, I've read, but like I've read a lot of pieces that Gillian Flynn did at the time of adapting Gone Girl and just how she approached it, which has been really helpful. I've been reading a lot of scripts recommended to me both by Didi and Kristen and watching movies and just trying to, to make it work. You're studying. Right. Yes. That's Stu- you're taking you're it studying. like a lawyer project. Yes. You're like, <laughs> yes, I'm studying Perfect. it and just trying to approach it. And isn't that exciting? Like- That's exciting. It's so exciting. And it's so amazing. You've done YA, adult novels, now screenwriting. I just, I love it. You just, your brain is all parts are firing. Uh, yeah. Well, it was very, it used to be very uncommon for novelists to be anywhere near something mm-hmm. that was Hollywood, right? Yeah. So no novelists. I mean, Emily Giffen, Jennifer Weiner, those are big names mm-hmm. and they weren't allowed to touch their adaptations. Mm-hmm. And it is coming a little bit closer. And part of that is, I think, Reese getting involved a little bit. And yeah. then also people are just letting the novelists take the first crack. And the old concern was that they would be too precious mm-hmm. and they wouldn't be able to cut it and they wouldn't want to make sure. it look something different. And I just feel like, recent adaptations are proving so far from that like so far from it Celeste Ng wasn't involved but she had approval rights and her adaptation was very different from Mm -hmm. Little Fires Everywhere I don't know if you watched Made for Love on HBO Max yeah the writer that was another adaptation the writer completely went in a different direction and Mm -hmm. she was like not precious about it she's like I want to make a tv show now like let's let's do this so that is slowly changing and I think for the best because you're right who better to re-envision this material than the original writer than the one who knows more than anyone else should know right Mm -hmm. you don't even have to know as much as the the author the novelist knows yeah and I just think Yes, there's a tendency in this industry to sort of infantilize writers in a way and like protect them from things. And I think that kind of carries over into this idea that like, oh, writers couldn't possibly take apart their own work. Like we're professionals. Like we want to have the best product at the end of the day, like anybody else. And there's lots of great writers and I'm sure that other projects they could be written by other people. I don't know. But I've also been really thankful for women that have shared their experience. Like Jessica Knoll, you know, she wrote mm-hmm. that. Yeah. She wrote that piece in the cut, mm-hmm. I Want to Be Rich and I'm Not Sorry. And then she wrote a follow-up oh, piece to that. that. And I think that gave me such a good model because she was saying like, I want to be the person to write the book and I want to be the person to write the script. And I was like, oh yes, no, this is where I should be trying to point my... And now she's yes. doing it. Now I mean, she's now doing she's it. Just, so, yes. She's filming it right now. So Yes, I always yeah. say, have these kind of like long distance mentorships where they don't necessarily know me, but I read all these like, interviews from them and like get advice as if they're giving it to me. Uh, That's the whole basis of this podcast. Yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. A hundred percent. It's so good yeah. to have those things out there. It is. It's really yeah, helpful. Yeah. And really. I take it very practically when people put those things out there. So. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Well, this has been uh, just a delight. Thank you so uh, much. We can for talk in- all day. <laughs> well, oh my yes. God, for real. Especially if the challenge is I know, involved. right? <laughs> well, I couldn't talk all day about that. Yes. But, but can- all sorts of other things. So thank you so much. Thank you guys. This was, this this was amazing. Really fun. I love that you guys are doing this. This is so cool. Love seeing people do creative things. It's great. Great. Oh, excellent. So tell our listeners where they can find you on social media. Which one's your favorite platform? Yeah. What if you have a newsletter or website or whatever, whatever it is. The place where I'm most active is definitely Instagram, which is Chandler Baker Books. And I, I keep that up to date. And Twitter, I'm C Baker Books. And ChandlerBaker.com is my website. But definitely Instagram's the place to the place to be. I love your Instagram. I always get a kick out of your Friday fun, the Friday laughs. And and then you take serious personal questions and also craft questions. It's a really great Instagram to follow if you're at all interested in writing and keeping it professional, but also, you know, fun. Yeah. And fun and not like professional, you know, like I love it. So thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. 
This has been Pop Fiction Women with Corinne and Kate. If you enjoyed this show, please tell the complicated women in your life. And the men who love them. Yes, tell them to listen. And then to follow on Spotify or review and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. And of course, share on social media. Tag us with your favorite books, TV shows, and movies starring complicated women on Facebook and Instagram at Pop Fiction Women or on Twitter at Pop underscore Women. For more coverage of the women you love or to find out if you qualify as a complicated woman, go to popfictionwomen.com. And keep it complicated.